0: Simply ingesting information about food, like all of this information, all these blog posts, all these podcasts, all this Instagram stuff that says gluten is bad for you, can lead us to having a food intolerance response, even if we're not technically intolerant to that food. It's called conditioned food hypersensitivity response. Some people believe that because we're taking in so much information, That causes us fear of food, that that fear of food may actually be producing very real physiological responses.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. This is Pat McCauley, as always. My guest this week is the amazing Desiree Nielsen. Desiree is a registered dietitian. She is the host of the All Sorts podcast, and she is a best-selling author of three books. Uh, her, her first bestseller was Eat More Plants, and she just released her new book called Good for Your Gut. We talk about how she first became interested in gut health, uh, the most common digestive issues people struggle with. How important digestion is to overall health. What foods to eat to heal your gut. Why gluten is most likely not your problem. Why the food itself might not be the problem, but rather it's how we perceive it in our relationship to it. This was a super interesting perspective there. Um, Why fiber is crucial to a healthy gut. Uh, Whether or not fermented foods help or hurt your gut. Um, the Role Leaky Gut Plays in Disease, Why We Should Not Fear Soy, and then we get all into her latest book, Good for Your Gut. Uh, Desiree is awesome. Uh, if you want somebody good to follow on social media uh, like that is really like high value, follow her uh, TikTok and Instagram. I'll leave links to that. She's always putting awesome, interesting uh, content out around food and your gut and all that. Um, So enjoy this one, a ton of great information, and I will see you guys on the next episode. Without further ado, the incredible Desiree Nielsen. All right, Desiree, welcome to the show. As I was just saying, I've been diving into your work over the past few hours here, and Uh, congratulations on this is number two, second book.
0: Yeah. This is like the second, like big book. I did a little indie book book, like in 2013 that like a handful of people, mostly my family. (laughs) read. So this is like the second big book that like people are actually reading.
1: (laughs) Right. And the first one for people that aren't familiar with you, it was eat more plants,
0: correct? Yes. Eat more plants. And now good for your gut. I like very direct book titles, apparently.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Awesome. Well, welcome and uh, yeah, excited to dive in. And um, I think maybe a good place to start is um, I always like to get just a little background on like why this stuff interests you in the first place. Yeah.
0: You know... Being where I am today, I really wish that I like took like a microbiology class or like something in my undergrad, <laughs> because when I first became a dietitian, like I I became a vegetarian when I was a teenager, went, you know, fully plant-based in my thirties in my mid thirties. And, you know, like my first love was actually oncology. I was very much into like integrative and functional medicine because um, that was the thing at the time. And I I was so intrigued by, you know how people who receive a cancer diagnosis are really exploring for like alternative options to try and like live their healthiest life and i really fell into digestive health um because my first uh job my only real job really <laughs> was like for uh, as nutrition manager for like a local chain of health food stores and i just couldn't get over like how every question was about gut health like Every day people were coming in and like, this is going on for me, this is going on for me. And I was like, like, I felt totally unprepared by my education. I was like, we did not talk about gut stuff, like, like maybe a couple weeks in the degree. And like, even in the internship, because dietitians go into the hospital, like it was not very much. And so I was like, someone needs to help them. And I was like, might as well be me. (laughs) And like sort of like (laughs) dived a lot, like dived in you know, and we didn't have a lot of research. Like even today, we don't have a lot of gold standard therapeutic diets, uh, in nutrition at all. Um, but then like after the birth of my first child, like I got IBS. And so I was like, now it's not just professional. Now it's also personal. I've got some skin in the game. (laughs) So it would behoove me to like really know my stuff in this area.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And I think I've heard you say this, but like Things around the gut and digestion, right? They're kind of these things that so many people have, but like we whisper about them. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm having trouble with my stomach, or you know, we we. It's not things we like openly talk about, even though like obviously it's extremely critical to our health. Um, So I know you get into this a little bit in the new book, but like, what are Some of the most common things you see that people come to you. And even back then when you were working at the health food store, like what are the most common things people suffer from?
0: Yeah. So, you know, for like an everyday type of issue, like bloating is absolutely like the number one thing that people come to me and ask me about. Uh, And bloating is like way more complex than people might imagine. Like people think, oh, I'm bloated. I must have some sort of food intolerance. But actually, like, bloating can run the gamut from like, you really love fizzy drinks. Like you are like LaCroix 24 seven and like all that gas is entering your gut and it needs to go somewhere to, you know, you could have a digestive condition like IBS or even your pants could be too tight and you could be sitting all day in pants that are really tight and literally cut off like sort of that digestive flow and you end up super bloated and in pain by the end of the day. So like that's probably like the most common everyday thing. Um, Otherwise, in our practice, I mean, we deal with a lot of IBS. Uh, Here in Canada, we have some of the highest rates of both irritable bowel syndrome, but also the inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and colitis, Um, higher than most other countries in the world. Like US is super close too, Um, but like as many as 18% of Canadians have irritable bowel syndrome, which is shocking. So we work a lot with- irritable bowel syndrome, um, celiac disease, of course, and then Crohn's and colitis in our practice. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's, that's an insane number. And, and it's crazy that Canada would be above or anybody would be above the U S and some of these things. I'm always, I'm always shocked if, uh, we're not the number one based on, you know, what what we're doing here. Yeah, um, we're close. yeah. Yeah. What do you have like a sense of like what, because certainly when I like started to find my health was when I feel like I started to really understand food um, and I started to understand my digestion and I feel most alive and most well when I'm not eating um, or I'm eating very little or like, you know, just fruit or, or, or things like that. Um, so like I'm a big believer in like getting out of the way. And digestion, like, at least from what I understand, takes a ton of energy and um, things like that. So what what do you have a sense of like how important gut health is and digestion in just leading a healthy disease-free life?
0: Yeah, you know, it's foundational. You know, at, at its most basic, our digestive tract is responsible for digesting and absorbing every single nutrient from the food that we eat. And without Those nutrients, like every cell in our body cannot do its thing. You know, like our heart can't build new heart cells and like our brain can't function properly. Uh, Like it's absolutely critical that we digest and absorb the nutrition that our cells need every single day. But the other thing about gut health that we probably don't talk, it's becoming more popular now, but we I don't think we appreciate as fully is the fact that the gut is a really complicated place like 70% of our immune function resides within and along the gut space. And the reason for that is that the gut, even though we think of it as inside our body, technically it's like outside our body because it's continuous with the outside space from like, you know, entrance on through exit. And so we have like a fairly delicate gut barrier. And so the immune system puts most of its sort of like cellular machinery within and along in the gut to help protect that gut barrier. But then the other thing about the gut is that it's got a ton of nerves. So we have this nervous system in our gut called the enteric nervous system, which you know most of us in high school, we hear about like the parasympathetic, which is like the rest and digest nervous system, and then like the sympathetic, which is our fight or flight. Some people consider like the gut nervous system like a third major branch. And the nervous system dictates so much of how our gut operates, like how it moves, digestive secretion. So like literally whether or not we can digest and absorb our food, but then there's a lot of communication that goes from the gut to the brain as well. And so we know that having proper digestive function is also really critical to having a healthy nervous system. And I don't know about you, but my nervous system needs all the help that it can get right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. For sure. So in in things that impact our gut, right, are quite obviously the foods we we consume. But then there's other factors as well from from sleep to stress to movement to all these things in some fashion affect our gut. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, di- di- as a dietitian, uh, like I would love to say that it's 100 percent food and food is absolutely a critical piece of this. But so often, particularly with things like IBS, which is actually technically called a disorder of gut brain communication, like in the definition of what's going on in your body, they're like the brain and the gut is not communicating properly. So we can't address something like IBS without addressing like stress and the nervous system component. And we see like a huge intermingling of mental health and gut health, you know, people with IBS are far more likely to have depression or anxiety than people without it. And there's a bit of a like, you know, which comes first scenario. But there's actually been some research asking that very question. And one recent study that, you know, I can think of right now showed that when you take people like a day one and you get either a diagnosis of anxiety or depression or a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And then you check back in with them day 365. The folks that got IBS first are far more likely to have received an anxiety or depression diagnosis than the folks that started with a depression or anxiety diagnosis in getting IBS. So we we know that there's something going on in the gut that is absolutely interacting with not just the gut-based nervous system, but also like our central nervous system and our mental well-being.
1: Mm, Yeah, that is, that's super interesting. Like uh, as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, like when you get super nervous or, you know, you get stressed out about work or something like the first place you feel it is your gut, right? You get that like feeling like, oh shit in your gut. And it's a real uncomfortable feeling. And then, and then it kind of goes the opposite way too. Like, you know, you feel so much better when you eat, Healthy food, like mentally, you feel better, so i i like we intuitively know that, but we like don't actually look at it that way
0: yeah, and you know, and I love that you mentioned that because we do like we've we've even We intuitively know it to the point where we've entrenched it in our language. Like we say, oh, I've got butterflies in my stomach. Exactly. Because you're nervous, right? And so we know that this occurs. And, you know, that, that same sort of like mechanism, you know, if you're really stressed out about writing an exam or you have a big presentation, like that is the exact moment when your bowels will decide to move. They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, you got to go right now. (laughs) It was not very convenient, but it really does sort of cement that idea that the two things are connected. And so when we talk about supporting like the gut, absolutely the nutrition, but there has to be that piece of like, well, what's going on in my nervous system? Like, how can I manage stress? How can I take more time for rest than I'm getting right now? Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when somebody comes, right, they have Crohn's or IBS or any of these things we've mentioned, Um, What are they often doing wrong in your opinion? And what do you often recommend they do to overcome it?
0: Yeah, the most, the most common sort of presentation when people first walk into our practice is that they are eliminating a whole bunch of stuff. And they're typically eating a really low fiber really easily digested diet. Like I'm talking like white bread. Oh my gosh. You know, so often, particularly with like our Crohn's clients, they'll come in and they'll be drinking like Red Bull and like eating like full on like Subway cold cut sandwiches because it's really easy to digest and absorb. And so in the moment, it doesn't feel irritating to the gut. And people are often under this false impression that they have to eliminate a lot of these whole plant foods because right now they feel irritating to the gut because they contain all of these fibers, all this residue that stays in the gut that gets fermented by their gut bacteria. And so the first thing we do is start to bring these foods back in, like even in our most like damaged gut clients, like people who go to the bathroom like 20 times a day you know, our main goal is to get them as plant-based as possible. And because that is what we know will help keep them well in the future. So you get this, this sort of like scenario where you're eating food that sort of like feels good to your tummy, like in the next two hours, but it's the very same food that will help perpetuate these kind of problems for years to come. So we will use, and this is one of the things that I did with good for your gut. Like I designed the recipes really with like our clients in mind. And so we have this section of recipes called Soothe. And these are totally for the folks who have like maybe abandoned, you know, these whole plant foods in favor of more hyper processed foods. So that's where the smoothies are. That's where like blended soups are things that are really well cooked and blended because it helps make things easier to digest so we can get all of that important nutrition into their bodies so they can begin to heal. And then ironically, then so their tolerance can build up and they can continue to eat more and more plant foods. So
1: I've, I've also kind of seen the other way, at least with friends and family, where they start adding more plants in and all of a sudden their digestion starts working overtime and more and they think that is not right. They think that's something's wrong and then they revert back to how they were eating before.
0: Oh my gosh, we see this all the time. Like we have so many folks in our practice who will come to see us like three, six, 12 months into adopting a plant-based diet. And they'll be like, I don't know, like maybe I have a lot of food intolerances and I just didn't realize it because they do. They go from zero to 60 overnight. And so one of the things that I always tell everyone is that like you have got to train your gut for like high plant life. The same way you train your legs for a marathon. Like, no Mm. one blames running. Like, no one would go from like couch potato and then be like, oh, this weekend I'm going to run a marathon. Sounds like a great idea. Fall apart at mile like, you know, six. And then, oh, running is bad for people. Like, you know, I felt terrible. So running is bad. But we do this to food, you know? So instead of being like, okay, I have a really low fiber diet, I'm going to start slow. Like, I'm just going to transition to like steel cut oats in the morning. Like, that's going to be the flex. And then I'm going to wait, let my body get used to that because the gut loves routine. Like if the gut had its way, we would wake up and go to bed at the exact same time. We would like eat our meals at the exact same time. We'd eat roughly similar foods all of the time because it doesn't always know what's good for it. But we have to sort of give it that time to adjust. And so you add in fiber slowly, build up that like fiber muscle drink lots of water because fiber needs water to do its job. Uh, and then when you're ready, you keep going. Mm,
1: yeah. I'd love to get your opinion on gluten. Uh, I'm in, I'm in the food and in restaurant space and I didn't realize like how big like gluten-free diets and just people's awareness or, around gluten is. And I kind of have my my theories on it <laughs> that maybe are not popular, um, but I would love to get to get your thoughts. Like I, I've always like, at least what I see with people when they like do a gluten free diet, right? They what they eliminate is like all of the a lot of the processed foods they're eating, right? They eliminate like the crappy breads, they eliminate the pizza crust, they, the donuts, whatever else that you know flour is is found in and things like that. And they feel better, and I'm like, "Well, okay, was that the gluten, or was that the fact that you stop eating crappy food?" Um, so, I'm just kind of back and forth on gluten, and I'd love your I'd love your thoughts as a someone that knows way more than me on it.
0: Oh my gosh, I love a hot take, and honestly, you hit the nail <laughs> on the head right there. So, you know, this all became a thing, you know, a while back when there's this you know huge best selling book that said that like gluten is the enemy, gluten causes everything but then if you actually look i mean the science is terrible and totally misquoted in that book but then also it's a bait and switch because in that book you're like oh wow like gluten really is evil like i need to eliminate gluten from my diet and then you go to the menu plan in that book and yeah it's pretty much like low carb and it's like all like it's like vegetables and proteins and so if you go from the standard american diet to eating whole foods, you're gonna feel remarkably better, but it's not the gluten. And the science confirms that it's not the gluten. So if you have celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease that like roughly 1% of us have, that is very specific. When you have that autoimmune disease, eating gluten triggers the autoimmune response. Like gluten didn't cause the disease, but like once that switch flips in the body, then gluten is no good. And you like, even a speck, like even a crumb, like a celiac can't share a toaster with someone who uses regular bread. So that aside, the research does not support the idea that gluten causes leaky gut or inflammation in folks with a generally healthy bowel. And in fact, there's like a, this whole sort of like back and forth in the literature between irritable bowel syndrome and something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, because there is a subset of people who are like, no, we don't have celiac disease. But like it is very clear when you remove gluten from their diet, like their world changes, all of their symptoms disappear. And so it does appear to, that there are a subset of people who are like that, but it's very, very small. And in the research, Some people are asking, well, is it actually the gluten in wheat, barley and rye, or is it something else called a fructan? Now, a fructan is this like long carbohydrate chain that's really hard for the body to break down. It's actually a prebiotic. So like, again, for the majority of us, this is a good thing. Like it's good for your gut bacteria. It's going to keep them happy and healthy. But in IBS, these fructans cause an increase in symptoms again because the IBS switch has already turned on and now you introduce this food and now it's like fermenting and you're getting gassy and like painful bloating all that kind of stuff and there's been some research to show people who believe it's the gluten causing their symptoms it's actually the fructans causing their symptoms not all (laughs) of the research there is some research to say no 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 it is gluten but like I said it's like a small fraction of people, like maybe 5% of people. And then for the rest of us, we're merely robbing our bodies of what is a really nutrient dense whole grain. I mean, white bread. Yeah. I mean, love it once in a while, but it's not actually delivering a ton of nutrition. But like a wheat berry, farro, spelt. These whole grains are incredibly high in plant based protein. Like we're all up on quinoa wheat berries uh, have just as much protein as quinoa, if not more. So these foods are actually really beneficial for a healthy gut. And my last book was fully gluten-free because we have so many gluten-free clients in our practice, but because I'm keeping with the evidence and this is a gut focused book, I actually brought gluten back for a subset of the recipes that are for people with a healthy gut. who are just trying to keep their gut healthy.
1: Mm. Would that be a good test out of curiosity for somebody that is wondering if they're gluten sensitive to, instead of like removing breads and pizza to like have a cup of wheat berries or like have some farro and see yeah. if the actual whole food causes a, uh, an issue?
0: Yeah. So our, you know, our philosophy and practice is always eliminate as little as possible and focus on positive additive approaches so like what can you add into your diet because we know your health is created by what you eat far more than by what you don't eat and so yes if people are like i feel like every time like i yeah like i go to subway and i have a sandwich like i get really sick to my stomach or like every time i have like a massive like fettuccine you know at the restaurant like i feel sick that would be an excellent task like try actual wheat berries and see because it might be the form of the wheat, the processing of the wheat um, that you're dealing with uh, as opposed to like actually the grain itself. Um, sometimes it can be challenging because the other sort of like weird thing in all of this is there's some data to suggest and some really, really smart like dietitians and, and physicians who have, are starting to formulate this theory that simply ingesting information about food, like all of this information, all these blog posts, all these podcasts, all this Instagram stuff that says gluten is bad for you can lead us to having a food intolerance response, even if we're not technically intolerant to that food. It's called conditioned food hypersensitivity response. The idea is like Pavlov's dog, right? You ring the bell, you give the food. You ring the bell, you give the food. And all of a sudden you ring the bell and the dog starts salivating. Some people believe that because we're taking in so much information that causes us fear of food, that that fear of food may actually be producing very real physiological responses. So you know what? It's just, it's a galaxy of interesting things to think about.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, that's super, super interesting. I can see that how, like, I mean, when you believe you're eating food that promote your health, promote your health, you're for whatever reason, again, maybe that's the, the mind gut connection as well. Right. Um, that it, it makes you feel good versus if you're like, oh, you're sitting down and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have this donut. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's our, relationship with the donut that actually causes the issue and not the donut itself
0: and you know therein lies a massive opportunity particularly because we we tend to live in a society and expose ourselves to information that's really almost disordered around food and around Mm. our bodies and so the opportunity is that we can retrain those thoughts and we will do this in our practice because you know if people have been suffering from some sort of gut health issue Or autoimmune disease for years, and they start to get really fearful of food. And we've used mantra like to help people sort of like reset their beliefs exactly like that. If you're going to eat a donut, and like the old diety brain in you says, "Well, this donut is so bad for me; I shouldn't be eating it. The sugar is like toxic, or whatever else like internet BS (laughs) that's out there." We can say, you know what? I really love donuts this is such a special treat for me. It makes me really happy when I eat this food and I'm going to feel great. Mm. And it's a kind of like fake it until you make it idea. And if that sounds so woo and like there's no way the science would support that, we actually know in irritable bowel syndrome, for example, that gut-directed hypnotherapy might be as effective for decreasing your symptoms as the low FODMAP diet which is our current gold standard dietary therapy. So imagine like no dietary changes whatsoever, but doing hypnotherapy to retrain your nervous system and therefore improve your symptoms. Like that's wacky. <laughs> like if that wasn't <laughs> science, I would be like, no way. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had some like healers on the show, like renowned healers and stuff. And they talk about kind of like your ability to like, alchemize your food, you know, with gratitude and appreciation as opposed to, um, yeah, those kind of, as you said, toxic thoughts around your food, um, and just how that can, uh, yeah, if you will change, change the energy around the food and, and again, just your general relationship to it and the, the, the signals going down from the brain to how that food reacts in your body. So interesting. So cool. So I'd love to talk, uh, I we're kind of talking, but I'd love to talk microbiome and specifically I'd, I'd also like to talk about, um, probiotics. You said the term earlier, prebiotic, Mm -hmm. maybe we can talk about those two terms and especially with the probiotic craze, like what are some things you think are health promoting, like should people be drinking kombucha should be they t- taking a, a gut probiotic supplement is that absolute bullshit is it you know i'd love to get your thoughts on those
0: yeah and it's that's actually a question that i get a lot like what is a prebiotic versus like what is a probiotic hmm. and so the clearest way to think about it is this a probiotic is a beneficial bacteria that lives in your gut and the prebiotic is the food for the probiotic. So Mm -hmm. once you have those probiotics, once you have all those good bacteria, you need to feed them. So they like live and multiply and do all that great stuff. So they need prebiotics, which by their definition is stuff that like humans don't digest and absorb. And that's one, just one of the sort of like amazing benefits of eating more whole plant foods because they are by their nature. And this is a good thing, hard to digest. Like there are fibers and there are indigestible carbohydrates and fermentable carbohydrates that we don't digest and absorb into our body so they remain in the gut where they interact with the gut tissues like sweeping it clear helping to encourage cell turnover and then it lands in the colon where you've got all these trillions of gut bacteria and they can ferment them. And sometimes they make gas, like gas is a fact. Um, but also they can make these short-chain fatty acids, which some people call a postbiotic. So the idea is feed your probiotics prebiotics, and they'll make postbiotics out of them. They're just these like fatty acids, like tiny little fats. Um, You know, butyrate is probably the most famous. I mean, if you're like a gut nerd like me, it's the most famous one. And we know that when you have gut bacteria, like munching fibers, making butyrate, like so many amazing things happen. We feed our gut cell, like most of the butyrate we make goes right back into the gut lining and like actually fuels the gut cell itself. But it also goes to the immune system, and helps encourage appropriate inflammatory response. So not too much, not too little, and it filters through to the nervous system too, to help keep the nervous system functioning properly. It can even change the amount of serotonin, which most of us think of as like our feel good neurotransmitter. Butyrate can impact the amount of serotonin that the gut makes, which is just wild. So. We think about probiotics and we're like, okay, so that's like, that's a really good thing. (laughs) Like, gut bacteria are a really good thing. Therefore, taking a probiotic must be a really good thing. The challenge is like, the vast majority of the probiotics on the shelves are like literal garbage. They're terrible. (laughs) They have got beautiful packages, they have like glossy marketing. But they don't contain either the right kinds of bacteria or in big enough amounts to do something because we actually have like a fairly robust evidence base to suggest that probiotics have a lot of potential. And I say potential because they don't always pan out. Um, Irritable bowel syndrome is one place where they do seem to pan out. Um, And we've used probiotics in our practice quite a bit. But the most important thing If you're going to try it, it's not always my first line of defense. Food always is. You know, it's always get the nutrition right first and then add a probiotic if you're interested, if you can afford it, but choose one that is evidence-based. And there's actually a really great tool, like really easy to use tool. You'd be like, which probiotic should I buy? In the States, because we have, it's Canadian. And so we have a Canadian version, but there's an American version. It's called Probiotic Chart. And the website is US Probiotic Guide. .com just go to that website it is not a fancy website <laughs> it is run by health <laughs> professionals not like <laughs> marketing people <laughs> but it's actually like a team of like doctors and pharmacists and like every year they go through the research so you can see like you can go to the health food store and you're like what about this one and you can look it up on probiotic chart and they're like it's not on here it doesn't have any research put it back on the shelf and like grab one with actual research
1: cool gotcha and in, in is are fermented foods a replacement to all that as well
0: generally no so when i was writing good for your gut i went back and did a deep dive i'm like where's the research at now and still the research is so minimal on fermented foods that being said i think fermented foods are incredibly nutritious absolutely a part of like a gut friendly diet but just like you don't like Eat a plate of broccoli and think it's going to cure your cancer tomorrow you don't like sort of like eat fermented foods today like drink a kombucha and be like okay my ibs is gone tomorrow (laughs) like it just doesn't work that way because usually the amounts of microbes are very low and they might not be specifically microbes that are known to do something in the gut um there's a couple of exceptions to that so the first is kimchi So there is actually a decent evidence base for eating kimchi. And one of the reasons for that is we have this amazing like study population in South Korea who are used to consuming this food not only on a daily basis, but also in the amounts required to have an impact. Mm. So like the research on kimchi is not like people have like two tablespoons versus none. It's like the controls have two tablespoons and then like the study population is eating like a half a pound a day yeah (laughs) and when you eat like a half a pound of kimchi a day awesome things happen you improve your blood glucose regulation you improve your blood cholesterol you improve your blood pressure like that's pretty major so like if you can eat a half a pound of kimchi a day go for it it's awesome um but like that was pretty much it when i wrote the book and you know only recently like after like deadlines had passed, sigh. Um, there was a great study out of Stanford um, with the Staunenbergs who are like gut microbiome research royalty. Um, they actually tested fermented foods versus eating more fiber. But it was a short term study. And this is really key. And it was the first study that showed that eating fermented foods would actually shift the microbiome favorably. I think it was six weeks. And so if you can really commit to this as a daily practice, it does appear to have a positive impact. It's just not as therapeutic as like a evidence-based clinical probiotic. Mm,
1: Yeah. Cause I've always wondered like in, on that study you mentioned, right? Is it the fact that they eat like a pound of cabbage a day or is it the fact that it's fermented? Or is that, you know, (laughs) like which one lowers the blood pressure, right? (laughs) And
0: so many of our fermented foods, the base is really healthy plants, right? And so there's always going to be that corollary that like you're eating more plants. Fermentation also can change the nature of the plant. So it can actually increase antioxidants. It does produce a little bit of those organic acids um, as well, which have a benefit, but it is really, when we talk about fermented foods, about a dietary pattern that includes a lot of plants that absolutely can include fermented foods and what you do day in and day out over time that has an impact as opposed to be like, you know, like the magic bullet, like one meal and I'm done situation.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So potentially a good supplement could help, but obviously it's not going to replace just eating as many plants as you can over a long period of time.
0: Totally. (laughs) It was a very long winded (laughs) answer. There's just so much nuance in all of it.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, Cool. Is there anything else in the so You mentioned uh, actually you mentioned leaky gut and I know you did like a deep dive into that recently. What's what's the story with leaky gut? Like, you know, when somebody's told they have leaky gut and they need to like eat X, Y or Z, like what's 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 the deal with that?
0: yeah there's like big wellness energy around leaky gut right now and Mm. you know so like what does that even mean because it sounds like a totally made up thing but in actual fact leaky gut which you know in the research is called gut barrier dysfunction like the gut barrier isn't doing what it's supposed to um it's really well established as not only existing but like existing in like a ton of chronic issues like the ones that you'd expect like celiac disease or crohn's disease plenty that you don't expect. Things like type 2 diabetes, for example. And so what that means, because we talked about the gut barrier being important, like keeping the outside world out, uh, that needs to happen. The gut cells need to be nourished and they need to be like essentially zipped together in order to like maintain that barrier function. The other thing that like is really (laughs) interesting or super gross or like, you know, what have you about the gut barrier (laughs) is that it really is just sort of a single cell standing between you and the outside world. And so there's actually quite a thick mucus layer on top of those cells as well. And so keeping that intact, which you know fiber helps, like as it brushes through the gut, it helps sweep and keep the debris out and it encourages turnover of the gut barrier. But a lot of people are sort of walking around and they're like, oh, someone told me I have leaky gut syndrome right. and is not a thing like leaky gut is not a diagnosis. And like the best way to sort of describe it is if you go to the doc and you're like, I've got a runny nose. And the doc is like, you've got runny nose syndrome. And you're like, uh, that's like not helpful at all. Like all you did was describe what's happening in my body right now. And you didn't tell me why do I have a cold? Do I have the flu? (laughs) Do I have seasonal allergies? Like there are a lot of reasons why the gut barrier might be faulty or why you might have, Leaky gut. And, you know, stress plays a huge role in how the gut barrier functions, as does chronic inflammation. So if you've got a lot of inflammation in the body, you know, plants will definitely help with that. But if there's already inflammation, it can cause that as well. There's also a really um, big association between something we call dysbiosis, which is like an imbalance in like good to bad bacteria. And Leaky gut. So while we know it's a thing, it's really unhelpful for someone just to say, You've got leaky gut, because you're like, What do I do about it? We don't have a gold standard diet to like fix leaky gut. And like so many things in gut health, we also know that like you have to tackle it from all sides. Like you got to sleep, you got to rest, you got to move your body. But boy, do you need to eat fiber. What's so typical when people get told they have leaky gut is they also get told to go on a super strict elimination diet where you eat like none of the things like no, no gluten, no soy, no corn, like all of these things. We have no research for that whatsoever. And what happens is you end up undernourishing your gut and undernourishing your immune system. And that's like the worst possible environment to find healing. Whereas when we eat a lot of whole plant foods, put a lot of fiber into the gut, it gives your gut like the building blocks it needs for that gut barrier to become strong again. Mm.
1: And again, to clarify, when you say fiber, you mean whole plant foods, not like your high fiber chocolate chip granola bar.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah. You know, ideally, ideally (laughs) we're eating whole plant foods, for a couple of reasons one that whole plant foods contain a wide variety of fibers and indigestible carbohydrates and we know you know from the data from the American Gut Project that diversity of plants is really critical to have a robust resilient and diverse microbiome so that straight out of the gate the other reason why is that when we're eating a ton of hyper-processed foods with some fiber sprinkled in, mm. we're also not getting the nutrients we need <laughs> to like run our gut and run our immune system. Um, so while I mean like get more fiber when you can, like gut health drinks, like Olipops and stuff are like such a thing these days. And that's fine if you enjoy them, but the foundation has to be whole plant foods. Mm. Awesome.
1: Awesome. How do, out of curiosity, how do they like when when somebody does get diagnosed with leaky gut? Is that like a urine test? Like how, how do they know it's actually you have it or it's a thing? Oh,
0: well, that's the million dollar question yeah, right they there. They just tell you they
1: just tell you you have leaky gut.
0: So, what happens most often yeah. is they get a blood test for a molecule called zonulin. And zonulin works and we actually discovered zonulin. Um, because of celiac disease. So Alessio Fasano, who is like one of the most famous celiac disease researchers discovered, you know, this group of molecules called zonulin. And if you think of like the gut cells being stuck together, zonulin works like a zipper to peel them apart. And we know in celiac disease, you eat the gluten, the zonulin turns on and then like we peel apart. But what we found at this point in the testing, because there's two ways to test. So there's a zonulin, that's a blood test. And then there's like a breath test where you consume all these like indigestible sugars like lactulose, and then you see what you breathe out. Uh, It's not a quite gold standard, but it's like close, close to gold standard, but that's not what people are being tested in. And there is some, research, a few studies to suggest that the serum zonulin, which a lot of like alternative practitioners are using to quote unquote diagnose leaky gut, doesn't actually match up with the breath tests. So it could be that zonulin is actually like a better marker of inflammation, like not leaky gut whatsoever. And so people are like walking around being like, I've got leaky gut, I've got leaky gut. And actually what you've got is probably a lot of inflammation in the body. And you know, whatever the question, whole foods are the answer. Full stop.
1: Yeah, yeah. I won't ask my next one then. Whole whole plant foods <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've heard you say, and I think you know it, it's a recurring theme. I interview people in the health world that everybody is different, and I love this question, especially when it comes to diet. Um, you know what? What amount are people different, right? I think I've heard you say something along the lines like. or so of your diet plants, and then like whatever that 20% else is, is kind of up to you. And I'm always curious to get like people's because I've had people on here that are like, a human's a human. We have the same digestive tract, we're the same from inlet to outlet, like all the same things happen, like whole plant foods, you're the same. But then I've had people that are like, no, we're completely different. And then i've had people where it's like oh we're pretty close it's like 85 percent should be this type of food and then like the rest doesn't matter where do you kind of fall on that
0: yeah i mean can i like split the difference and say that in so many ways we're totally the same but then in other ways we're completely different i think one of the challenges is is that like genetically there's very little that differentiates us from another human like we're so what is what is that like 99 percent the same like it's just it's remarkable like we're so mm-hmm. the same genetically Our gut microbiome, on the other hand, is dramatically different Mm -hmm. from person to person, like wildly different. Like we're talking like apples to oranges, to papayas, kind of different. And that changes our physiology. That changes how our gut works, our immune system works, our nervous system works, like the whole shebang. And so for me, there are very few absolutes in human nutrition, like eat more plants is one of them like there is not a person alive who wouldn't benefit from eating more plants in general and drinking a bunch of water Mm. but then on like the individual level because of our physiology and how our genetics and our physiology are interacting with our environments my gosh like anything goes like we can be allergic to pine nuts or not we can be, you know, we can have celiac disease and therefore can't touch gluten with a 10 foot pole or not. Mm -hmm. We can have, you know, like irritable bowel syndrome and all of a sudden lentils are causing us issues. Um, So I do think that it is really important to individualize um, our care. I mean, and that's what a really good like dietitian and doctor help you do. And I think the other important thing behind that message is it teaches us to trust our body because I can come at you with all this information. I can come at you with all this science, but I cannot be in your body. Mm. So while I can like bust myths, like till the cows come home, which I love to do, you need to know if something feels right and good to you and only you can decide that. And I hope that that feels really empowering to folks because, you know, we get so much information. Like we're just bombarded with health information at this point. It's not actually making most of us healthier. Like most of us are getting less healthy over time as opposed to more. And so recognizing that like your own lived experience is the most important thing. So, absolutely, like, take in what I have to offer, like what resonates. Yeah. Take this. This feels good to you, we'll let that go. It doesn't.
1: Yeah. And do you have any? This is a minutia question, but do you have any thoughts around like obviously, and we, I think you talked a little bit about it earlier like um, good inflammation and, and kind of good stress. Like, how does one that is listening to their body, right? And you gave the analogy of running, right? uh, earlier. It's like, if you've never run and you go out and run a few miles, it's going to feel awful, but probably beneficial to your body's health. So where do you draw the line of that is super uncomfortable. And that actually felt like shit, but that is health promoting? Like how do, yeah. how do you, <laughs> because if you listen to your body, you'd never run again, you know, yeah. or if you listen to your body, you'd never eat broccoli again or whatever. So do you have any thoughts around that?
0: Yeah, totally. And I think it depends a lot on like the stage um, that people are in their uh, like health, like, are they 25 or are they 55? You know, like, are they just sort of like average in health and wanting to get healthier? Or are they starting like behind the eight ball and really unwell? Um, Because if you're like 25 and generally healthy, I think that you can push yourself further. And I think that's where the listening to your body comes in. It's like, okay, so like what degree of like hurt and effort do I want to press myself if you're 25 and healthy? Maybe you want a 50%. You want a 50%. Like take yourself 50% above your current state. So maybe that's running three miles, even though you generally don't. For someone who's 55 or unwell, it could be, okay, so maybe we run for one minute and walk for five. Like Mm. where is that? Balance between like effort and surrender to just push you a little bit ahead. Because, really, for the majority of us, because so many of us get less healthy over time, if we can all just get, I think it was like atomic habits and I, it really stuck with me, this book, this idea of getting like 1% better every day, like it's far better to be like, I am going to go out every single day and maybe I can't run three miles now, but I can like run for two minutes mm-hmm. and just do that every day till it feels good. And you're like, okay, now it's, t- now it's time to move the needle forward. Like now I'm going to like run for five minutes. And so it is really about sort of like knowing yourself, um, because so many of us live like really overextended, super busy, overworked lives. And so nutrition and, and, you know, movement can be a positive stress. But when you're already living life at full tilt in these other areas of your life, you can increase your, your negative stress. You can overwhelm your body's ability to handle stress if you're also pushing it too far in your personal wellness.
1: Mm, I love That's, that answer.
0: Sometimes a nap is like the wellness, most wellnessy thing you can do.
1: Totally. totally. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. So good for your gut. So I know you have a ton of recipes in there. So are there any, without like going through the whole thing, are there any like interesting, maybe unique foods that maybe people don't commonly consume that you have in there that maybe people might find interesting or could could incorporate Mm -hmm. that come to mind?
0: Well, you know, like I'm a fan of all of the things. And so I think one, one thing that's unique about the book is that about a third of it is low FODMAP recipes for my IBS folks. And so can you,
1: sorry to cut you off. Can you, you yeah. mentioned low FODMAP earlier, yeah. I think, can you explain what that is? That's like the diet, which is a total like elimination diet. I'm pretty sure it's that somebody that has a gut issue goes on or that's kind of your standard.
0: Yeah. It's one of the rare instances in which a temporary Keyword being temporary, temporary. Yep. elimination can be, we have like gold standard evidence to say that it can be beneficial. So, FODMAPs are those fermentable carbohydrates I was talking about, like the fructans in wheat, so good for the rest of us. But because IBS is already like gas, bloating, pain, all mm. the things, eating more fructans can just put a heavy load on the gut in that scenario. So, we eliminate things like fructans, sugar alcohols, um, anything that can be really fermenty in the diet. So we're talking things like our healthiest foods, like lentils, like apples, like garlic. Garlic is just like a zinger for a lot of folks with IBS. We eliminate them for a short time, you know, six to 12 weeks max, and then slowly work on adding them in so we can assess our individual intolerance. And so you might imagine, and a lot of folks and one of the reasons why it was so important to me to make a third of the book low fodmap is that clients would come to us saying their health practitioner has just told them they cannot maintain their vegan or plant-based diet now because they have ibs which is a total lie it's just that that health practitioner didn't know what to do with them (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know plant-based and so because the book is fully plant-based i wanted to have all those low fodmap recipes so someone who does end up with a diagnosis who's like oh no i have the tools now i can like be well nourished eat really delicious food and do my low FODMAP elimination to see if I get better.
1: Right. So it's kind of like your, it's kind of like your initial transition diet before you really start exploring what you can and can't kind of work with. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. totally. So the book for me is about exploring diversity of plants for sure. Um, there are low FODMAP gluten-free, which means I love playing around with almond flour. It's one of my favorite flowers, chickpea flour, is another one of them, um, there's an Okonomiyaki uh, recipe in the book, which if people have not heard of that, it's a, a Japanese uh, traditional to the like Osaka region of Japan, which is like the first time that I tried it back when I was vegetarian <laughs> and not vegan, um, where you can go to these restaurants and like choose all of your mix-ins and then like mix it up at your table with like eggs. So it's like a little cabbagey egg pancake. So clearly my version is not traditional, but I use chickpea flour. Mm. as the egg base and then we mix it up with cabbage which is sort of a a common component and then do smoked tofu is to give it like even more protein so you've got like fiber and protein and then because mayo is life there's a little bit of like a pickled ginger mayo on top and so that might be new for some people and a really different way of cooking but actually still like really simple to put together and that's the other thing with the recipes in the book i'm a home cook i'm self-taught And when I'm not cooking for work, like on a Tuesday night, I have two kids to feed. I am not cooking for 90 minutes. Like that's (laughs) just not happening. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) So like I wanted these recipes to be really, really realistic for folks.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Can I ask, since you mentioned tofu, like that's obviously something, um, you know, you hear uh, negative things around estrogen and breast cancer and, uh, male hormones and all kinds of stuff. Can you talk on tofu and maybe how you would advise somebody that is kind of soy scared?
0: Totally. And if that person is soy scared, they're not going to believe me, but here's what the actual science says. Um, because the anti soy lobby is like very strong and blows me away. Mm-hmm. Um, soy contains something that we could also call a phytochemical which I think would take a lot of the stigma out of this idea of soy, but these phytochemicals known as isoflavones. And isoflavones work as what we call a weak estrogen in the body. And that word estrogen freaks people out, but it is very, very different than the estrogen in our bodies. In fact, it is 1,000 times weaker than the estrogens in our bodies. And the role that it plays in our body is that of moderator it's not just an additive thing so if our estrogen is low which isn't a good thing like estrogen protects our bones estrogen has like in all bodies in all genders estrogen has a really protective effect in the body so if our estrogen is low isoflavones from soy can kind of stand in Unless you have an actual soy allergy, because soy is a common allergen, just like wheat and, and dairy and shellfish and all that kind of stuff, soy is an incredibly nutritious food. And it's amazing how people will hear something once about soy and literally banish it from their life for like a decade. I mean, I was even talking with like a neighbor, so like a parent of one of my daughter's friends. And we just happened to mention something about soy. And she's like, wow, she's like, I don't need soy. Like, I heard it was like bad for you. And I just like never ate it again. And I'm like, no, we it's so funny because we see this information on the Internet, particularly stuff that says something is bad for us Hear it once. Never question it. Live by it for the rest of our lives, where if a dietitian comes on and is like, actually, the research shows not only is soy not bad for you, but it's like associated with like increased longevity and decreased risk of dieting. People are like show me your research. You don't know (laughs) the research. I'm like, oh my gosh.
1: (laughs) So true. So true. Well, we're, we're getting, uh, we're getting up close to an hour, but is there anything um, else in the book or of interest uh, in general, when it comes to uh, the gut that we haven't discussed that you might want to touch on? Hmm.
0: I feel like we've touched on the I mean, really, it's like plants, plants, plants for the gut. Um, One of the things that I will say about the book uh, is that, you know, when you see something good for your gut, it is a digestive health guide. Um, People will be like, oh, well, I wonder if this book is for me. And so I want folks to know that there's a 100 pages of information up front no matter that is beneficial, no matter who you are. Like, even if you're just gut curious, like what is this gut health trend? Like why does the gut matter? There's information that teaches you how your gut works, what is normal versus what is common, um, which is a really important differentiator because it's like Mm. super common to be constipated. Like 25% of us are constipated, but that's not physiologically normal for the body. But then we also go into like, what is gas? What is bloating? Like, where does it come from? Like, when is it okay? When is it not okay? So it really does cover the everyday stuff for everyone. Like my goal was it, for it to be a resource that people can return to again and again. So the book also contains over 90 nutrient-dense plant-based recipes that are delicious and easy to prepare, like no matter who you are.
1: I love it. I love it. I, I have one more question for you yeah. uh, because you mentioned it. When does one know gas is good and gas is bad? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) If you have an answer.
0: Yeah, I I mean, yeah. (laughs) Well, so when you're living that plant life, like eating all these fermentable fibers and carbohydrates, like gas is a fact. Um, It's normal to, when actually it's completely normal to pass, let's say, gallons of gas a day. Like your body makes gallons of gas a day. We don't notice all of it because most of it just like slips out the back door, just like, you know, nothing to see here, (laughs) like quiet, all that kind of stuff. Where gas becomes an issue is if gas feels trapped and so it's causing you abdominal pain. If it is copious amounts, like I cannot be in public for hours because this is just untenable that's when it becomes a problem. So if it causes you pain or if it just seems like it's so much and you haven't just like adopted a higher fiber diet like in the last two weeks kind of thing Um, and when it's associated with any painful symptoms like if there's anything going wrong with your bowel movements if you have any sharp pain again it's listening to your body like dull aches or like discomforts every once in a while are normal but if you have distressing pain and your brain is saying this is not right immediately go to the doc like do not pass go don't wait it out don't (laughs) google it like just go check up with a doc and make sure that everything's okay
1: awesome well we'll we'll end right there on gas that's what we'll do (laughs) (laughs) well thank you no thank you so much desiree this was um this was awesome and i know it will provide a ton of value for people um before we sign off Where can people get the book? So it officially came out yesterday, May 3rd, I believe.
0: May 3rd. It's out into the world.
1: Yeah. Where can people get it and where can people follow you? I know you do amazing for people listening. You do amazing TikTok and Instagram videos like on all kinds of topics. I was rattling through them earlier. Um, So yeah, give us the handles and all that as well
0: yeah if you want to join the nerd club and (laughs) and ingest some like deeply nerdy (laughs) nutrition information um so my website is desiree rd like registered dietitian.com i have very deep divey posts on everything from like what is bloating to like nutrition for autoimmune disease or celiac disease that kind of stuff on instagram i am desiree nielsen rd on The TikTok, and I'm new, so bear with me. Be gentle. (laughs) Like I'm Desiree (laughs) Nielsen, nutrition. And then the book is available, like everywhere books are sold. Like go into your local indie and ask them to order it in. Or if that's not available to you, like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of the things.
1: Awesome. Well, Desiree, you are helping people. Uh, so shout out to you and all your work. And uh, I wish you all the best and keep going.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. This has been really fun chat.
1: I'm never late, it is your currency